Well, good evening. Take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let me read in, starting in verse uh, 31, to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus, or Christ Jesus, is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We're coming to this final subsection here in this uh, most marvelous chapter. Um, uh, The the last paragraph here in uh, Romans 8 has been called by some the hymn of assurance or the triumph song, uh, the highest plateau in the whole of divine revelation, uh, considered by many to be the highest a mountaintop, if you will, or the Everest uh, of the letter. It really is a climactic ending uh, and one of the last declarations here in this letter of the doctrine of eternal security or uh, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's a doctrine that says that once you've been genuinely uh, brought to faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been foreknown, predestined, effectually called, regenerated, and justified, therefore they shall be ultimately glorified. Verse 30 really stands as an absolute clear reality to that doctrine, to that eternal security of the believer, that a true believer who's been justified, once you've been justified, you'll never become unjustified. A, a true believer who once is saved will never be lost because God always finishes what he starts. Uh, his work of grace continues all the way to the end uh, to glorification. Again, look at verse 30. Whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Again, they're all past tense. They're all completed actions in the mind and the will of God uh, from eternity. Uh, meaning that uh, as a believer, you are already glorified in the mind and the will of God. And, and because that is true, we, we sing this, but because that is true, it literally means, as the hymn writer says, uh, the certainty of your heaven... Uh, the, Certainty of heaven for you is as a real reality as if you've already been there for 10,000 years, right? When we've been there for 10,000 years, it's already like you've been there for 10,000 years. That's so certain is the truth that has been laid out here in these verses. Jim Boyce, a great pastor, 10th Presbyterian Church, passed away now, but he said this on eternal security. He says, eternal security is the truth that those who have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, having been foreknown and predestined to faith by God from eternity past, having been called, regenerated, and justified in this life, and having been so set on the road to ultimate glorification that this culminating glorification 
can even be spoken of in the past tense that these persons never will and never can be lost. Again, once you come to saving faith in Christ, once you're justified, you can't be unjustified. So again, those who are truly saved can never be lost. They can never lose their salvation. Daniel Steele writes this. He says, all who are in spiritual, all who are spiritually united to Christ through generation are eternally secure in him. Nothing can separate them from the eternal and unchangeable love of God. They have been predestined to eternal glory, therefore they are assured of heaven. And that's exactly what it says there. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Now, the doctrine of, the, uh, of eternal security, again, sometimes known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, is a wonderful doctrine that is meant to encourage us as believers. It's meant to give us hope. But, but sadly, it's a doctrine that is uh, misunderstood often, uh, often misrepresented uh, and, and flat out rejected, not believed uh, against the clear teaching of the scripture. Uh, th- that goes on or happens from any number of uh, individuals in modern evangelicalism. Some we don't know, but some are even prominent in the national line of the church. Many of them are what I would call self-professed backyard internet theologians. Uh, who post their confusion online and try to convince anyone who would listen to them uh, of their error and why the doctrine of eternal security, according to them, is heresy. And in fact, I, just for the fun of it, I, I just put in uh, eternal security and heresy, and there's no end uh, to the number of hits uh, you can get and no end to the number of, again, uh, uh, professed, uh, self-professed Internet theologians who will also have a link there on their website for you to give to their ministry, uh, which you shouldn't do because they don't know what they're talking about. Now, the doctrine of eternal security, to to argue against that, really is to argue against the truth. Because that's the truth that's revealed to us in in the Scripture. And and this argument against this doctrine is not new or modern. Uh, You've probably heard it yourself. You ask somebody or you you hear somebody ask the question, can you lose your salvation? And some people say, well, you know, I I, I just don't know. We can't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. And I can think of somebody I just listened to on the radio not too long ago who asked that very question, and that's the answer they get. Well, we, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Other people who come out of an Arminian persuasion with a variety of variations would teach that it is possible for a saved person to be lost, uh, to lose their salvation, and then end up in hell. That really has historically been the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It's been the teaching historically of the Churches of Christ, Church of Nazarene, most Pentecostal churches such as the uh, assemblies of God and virtually almost all Methodist churches teach that error. And ultimately, all who argue against the eternal security of the believer uh, do so because they have an, un, an improper, unbiblical, man-centered view of salvation and an improper, unbiblical, man-centered view uh, of the gospel. They fail to understand the truth that our salvation is entirely the work of God, by grace alone, through faith alone, through the person of Jesus Christ alone. And the gospel, really, the good news is a declaration about what God has done in and through the person of Jesus Christ. All man-centered views of the gospel obviously put the emphasis on men, what men do, what men don't do. But the Bible always places the emphasis on God and places the emphasis on Christ, uh, the fact that we can do nothing to obtain our salvation because we're all eternally, uh, we're all spiritually dead, right? Spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 3.10, there's none who understands there's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. So if salvation is to come to men, it has to be the work of God. The theologians would call it monergistic, monergistic regeneration. One work, and it's the work of God himself. That's why Jesus, I referenced it this morning, 
uh, uh, Jesus told Nicodemus uh, in John chapter 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, <clears throat> he can't enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Men need to be born again. Right? All men need to be born again. Men, men need new life from above. That's what that phrase born again means, life from above. And the truth is, because men get life from above, those who have been born again, uh, they can never lose their salvation. Because, listen, God justifies men as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 24. How does God justify? God justifies men as a gift. What do you do to get a gift? You receive it, right? You don't work for it. You don't earn it. It's not favored do you. It's a gift. God justifies men as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24. You probably ought to know that verse. Now, the doctrine of uh, eternal security is really a vital component of understanding overall our salvation. Because if our salvation is not permanent, if you can be saved one day, then not saved the next day. If you can be saved one moment, lost the next moment. right? If the doctrine of salvation is not permanent then the doctrine of unconditional election, as the Bible clearly teaches, would be called into question, as would the doctrine of justification, as would the doctrine of sanctification, as would the doctrine of glorification. They'd all be uh, called into the question, as would irresistible grace. That doctrine would be called into question. Look back up in uh, chapter 8, verse 28. It says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. There's the doctrine uh, of irresistible grace. God graciously, uh, effectually, electingly calls. He, He calls men who are separated from him because of their sin and rebellion. And he calls them to himself. And that irresistible, gracious call of God is a call of God from death to life, from darkness to light, from a position of being aliens and strangers and rebels against God, uh, to be adopted into his family. Verse 29 says, For whom he foreknew, prognostico, we've talked about that quite a bit. That's whom God has set his electing love on. That's whom God has chosen to love before the foundation of the world. Those whom he has loved before. Those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That he, the the son, might be the firstborn or the preeminent one among many brethren. Pororizzo is uh, predestined. It means to determine beforehand. In the New Testament, it talks about the decree of God from, or it means the decree of God from all of eternity. Predestined. Those who've been called have been predestined to do what? To look like somebody, to look like Christ. So the, that word predestined is another word that proves the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Because the elect are eternally secure because they were not only chosen to receive eternal salvation, but they have been chosen to be conformed to the image of God's Son, which is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which results in our glorification. Right? That's what he's saying. And again, verse 30 says, Whom he predestined, speaking of God, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and uh, whom he justified, the, I'll read it again, those whom he predestined he called, and whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Again, it's all the activity of God. God, God is the, the subject there. So if a person could fall and, and go to hell, they would not be foreordained. 
Uh, if a person could slip away from the faith that, uh, uh, that after they begun to believe, then there'd be no election, there'd be no calling, and then there'd be no one who's justified. And remember last week I told you that word justified is a really important word. <clears throat> Again, somebody who's been justified by God can't be unjustified. Now, justification, it gives a, is a once-for-all, one-time declaration of the God of the universe of our status before him. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope and the glory of God. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. That's the declaration of God. So after the remainder, I told you of chapter 5, uh, the apostle repeats that truth and he works out for us what that looks like, that we who are justified, that we're now in Christ. And again, he shows us what that means. So I told you that justification is much more than forgiveness of sin. That's part of it. <clears throat> but justification really places us in, in Christ. Places us in union with Christ, incorporated into Christ. It makes us part of him. And justification places us in an entirely new relationship with God. Uh, justification completely and forever changes our, our relationship and our status before God. We're now transformed, renewed, restored, freed from sin's bondage. Uh, now we're slaves of righteousness, alive to God in Christ, clothed in the, in, in the righteousness of Christ. And it's the righteousness of Christ that covers all of our sin. All of our sin, past, present, and future. Now, here again is the major issue for those who don't believe in eternal security, those who believe you lose your salvation. They don't understand justification. They have a faulty understanding of justification. <clears throat> Everybody who doesn't understand the doctrine of eternal security is under some kind of works system because they're trying to make themselves or they're trying to keep themselves in right relationship with, with God. And men can't do that. Men don't have the ability to do that. Only Christ can do that. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, Nothing so robs us of the joy of salvation and assurance as a failure <clears throat> to realize the full content of justification. And I would say a hearty amen to that. It's the issue of justification that men don't understand. You can't do anything to make yourself right before God. If you're going to be saved, it's only the work of God that does that. It's God and his kindness, not us and our works. But again, there's sadly many people out there that don't understand biblical salvation. They don't understand justification, and therefore they don't understand the doctrine of eternal security. But Paul anticipated that. He anticipated that struggle. He anticipated the fact that there's going to be people who would object, people who would not understand the doctrine of eternal security. Verse 30 again says, Whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Verse 31, the beginning of our text for this evening. What then shall we say to these things of God's force who's against us? So what Paul's going to do in this concluding paragraph here in Romans 8 is answer the objections. He's going to answer those questions, those objections to this doctrine. I, I've entitled uh, tonight's uh, sermon, Five Unanswerable Questions. I borrowed that title from somebody who borrowed it from somebody else who borrowed it from somebody else because that's a common, a common uh, title to put over this section of Scripture. But it's a good title because it fits in well here with the text. It fits in well with the context. We've just looked at five uh, undeniable affirmations regarding our eternal position and security before God, those five links in the golden chain of salvation, as I call them, regarding our eternal position before God and before Christ, um, foreknown, predestined, effectually called, justified, and glorified. And now Paul's going to ask five questions 
concerning what may may be able to harm us or defeat God's eternal plan regarding our eternal destiny. Now, now questions are a way to communicate. Questions are a way for us to stop and think rather than uh, just give an answer. If you ask somebody a question, and I say that to uh, the men a lot, if you just ask somebody, somebody a question, it really forces them to stop and either own the answer or think about the answer they're about to give. And questions also help when you ask somebody a question because when they leave the room, the question lingers. If you just tell somebody something or you demand something of somebody, they could reject that. But if you ask them a question, whether they agree with you or don't agree with you, they've got to stop and think about it. So questions are a great way to communicate. Now, sometimes questions are intended to gain information, like what time are you going to show up, right? But sometimes questions are known as rhetorical questions. And a rhetorical question really is a statement intended to give the answer in the form of a question. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do here at this concluding paragraph. He's going to raise a number of, uh, of uh, these kind of rhetorical questions that cause us to think. And just by way of a definition, someplace I got this from, uh, what a rhetorical question is, the, the writer says this, uh, a rhetorical question is a question that requires no reply, either because the answer is obvious or because the asker already knows the answer. Rhetorical questions are generally used to draw a contrast, persuade the audience, make the listener think, or direct the reader's attention to an important topic. So that's why I entitled it Five Unanswerable Questions, because really the truth is no, there's really no need to reply. The answers are obvious to all the questions that he's about to ask here at the concluding paragraph of Romans 8. Now, if you've got a pencil and you're paying attention whatsoever and you're keeping score, probably one of the first things that you've said to yourself as you read the text is, this guy can't count uh, because there's seven question marks. And I said five. That's true. Strictly, did you not pay attention to that? Strictly speaking, there are seven question marks. But I think when you look at verse uh, 31 and 35, each of those has two questions. And I think the first question in verse 35 is not really a question that belongs to the set as much as it is a tool that Paul uses uh, or a formula that Paul uses to move from exposition to the conclusion of his argument. And he's done that several times past. For example, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? And he gives the answer, right, verse 2, may it never be, right? He's not really saying, well, yeah, should we? Or should we? So take a vote on it. No, he's just saying, look, may it never be. How should we who died to sin still live in it? He's already got the answer. You already know the answer. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may increase? May it never be. He does the same thing in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And then he gives, again says, may it never be. So when he says here, what shall we say to these things? It's really a way of saying, in light of everything that I've been teaching you, what conclusions can we uh, come up with? What conclusions follow? And then he really goes on to state uh, the propositions, but he does it kind of negatively in the form of questions. In verse 35, there are technically two questions together, but, so, but they're really uh, both of the same inquiry. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril or sword? Right? So they're really two questions of the same category. So there are five main questions in all. Five questions concerned with those things that might be imagined that could be able to defeat God's plan and purpose for us in Christ. And they're going to come in two categories, under two categories, either persons or circumstances. And in verses 31 through 34, 
He's going to answer the question, can you lose your salvation by the influence of a person? Persons or circumstances? In verses 35 through 39, he's going to answer the question, can you lose your salvation by the influence of circumstances? That, that's basically the outline for the final paragraph. So five questions pointing to the reality of uh, the error of ever thinking that a person who's generally saved could ever lose their salvation. So here are the questions. You can just look with me very quickly and note them, and we'll work our way through them eventually. A verse, uh, the first question, verse 28, if God's for us, who's against us? Second question is really in verse 32. It says, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Here's the question. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Third question, verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Fourth uh, question, God's the one who justifies, verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Fifth question, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So he's going to ask these five questions, and then he's going to demolish the arguments and and the objections uh, concerning uh, the perseverance of the saints, and then he's going to make the ultimate assertion regarding our glorious absolute eternal security verse 38 says for i am convinced that neither death nor life nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord so he's going to ask the questions he's going to give the assertions he's going to answer them along the way but he's going to give you the uh, the glorious truth of our absolute eternal eternal security in christ now uh, before we begin begin to look at each of the questions we got to go back here to 31 and deal with that transition statement what then shall we say to these things? I, I said it's really not a question that belongs to the set as much as it's a tool or a formula Paul uses to move from exposition to the conclusion of his argument. What then shall we say to these things? Uh, again, really, it's a way of saying in light of all that I've been teaching, what conclusions come from this? What conclusions follow? So then the question must be in light of what things has he been teaching or what then shall we say to these things? What are these things? Now, these things, in the very least, have to be what he's been taught, been teaching in the chapter. It has to be at least that. So what has he taught so far in the chapter? Well, if you just want to run through and look back uh, real quick at the top of the chapter. He taught us that in Christ Jesus, there's now, therefore, no condemnation. Right? The, the true believer no longer stands before God under condemnation like the rest of humanity. Verses 2 to 4 in the chapter, he teaches us that we are eternally secure in Christ because of what God himself has done for the believer by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth. For in Christ God the Father condemns sin in the flesh so that the law might be fulfilled. Verses 5 through 13, uh, he taught that our salvation is guaranteed because of the work of the person of the Holy Spirit who now lives in the true believer. I mean, these are just monumental truths, right? Again, biblical Christianity is unlike anything else on the planet, unlike any other religion on the planet. All the other religions on the planet are telling us things we have to do to be right with God. It's only biblical Christianity that comes along and says, this is what God has done. This is what God has done to make man right with him. And not only that, as I pointed out this morning, it's only biblical Christianity that teaches that God himself has come down uh, to this earth and God himself has come down and now dwells with mankind. God lives within men who are now in Christ. Again, it's an absolutely phenomenal, glorious truth unheard in any of the other world 
religions that are nothing but false ways to, to God. That they won't get you there. Verses 14 through 16 here in this chapter, <clears throat> he teaches that our eternal security is guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit who is now in us. Again, proof that we are children of God. Verses 18 through 25, Paul teaches that we are God's sons, again, adopted into his family. Therefore, we're destined to inherit glory. Verse 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit helps us with our struggles. Verse 28 through 30, the character of God himself, again, guarantees our final, complete, total salvation in Christ. These things. Now, these are just the things that Paul taught in chapter 8. And I think, in reality, these things go back much further than just chapter 8, just in this one portion of the argument. It's in reality much further in all that Paul has been teaching on justification by faith alone, something that the apostle started all the way back in chapter 1, verse 16. So again, these things include everything that's said here in chapter 8, but includes the entire exposition of the way of salvation. Uh, he divided it up a bit along the way, as we kind of have been doing and working our way through, uh, for the ease of understanding. But also remember that chapter divisions and verses aren't divine. Uh, they're not, not part of the original. So this is one long letter. And, and chapter 8 here, this paragraph, of the entire chapter, but is really just one grand conclusion of the statement that he started all the way back in the first chapter when he introduced the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Right? The righteous man, the just man, shall live by faith. That's the gospel. It's justification by faith alone. And he goes on in uh, the first three chapters of Romans, kind of playing this out, helping us understand it. Chapter 1, he shows the reason for all mankind's guilt before God. Uh, chapter 2, he shows the fact that the Jews are also guilty before God. And chapter, at the beginning of chapter 3, shows how men, all men stand before God uh, as none righteous. At the end of chapter 3, he shows that salvation is not by works, but by the gracious provision of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, how Abraham was not justified by works, but by faith alone, as was David. Chapter 5, he begins to work out the results of justification by faith alone, namely peace with God and union with Christ. And then all the implications and objections to our union with Christ are worked out in that kind of uh, paragraph portion 6 and 7. Chapter 8, again, how the Holy Spirit actually works in the lives of those who are saved. So when he says, what shall we say to all these things, all these things that God has done, again, has to talk about the security of our salvation and includes all of this. Verse 28 here of Romans 8 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. So we confidently know that we're part of God's eternal plan, God's eternal purposes from eternity that he has set forth into time, this plan. And it included him sending forth his son as our substitute to be our sin bearer, that he might punish our sin in the body of his son, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and instead of punishing us for all eternity. And the Bible says that God so loves the world that he gave his son, right? He, and he so loves those who are his. He has ordained the events of our life. And again, not only has he sent Christ for us, he's worked out every detail in our life to work together for good, causing us to love God 
because, again, we've been called according to his purpose. So God's in charge of it all. So again, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? Now, the word if there really in, uh, in the Greek is a conditional participle, and it really signifies a full conditional, uh, uh, fulfilled condition. So, so it's not if in the sense of a possibility, maybe it's going to happen. No, it, it, it's not that. Meaning it's a, something that is a, a certain. So it really could be translated because. Because God is for us. Or since God is for us. Since God is for us or because God is for us, the question who is against us. Now, one commentator says this. Obviously, the implication is that if anyone were able to rob us of our salvation, they'd have to be greater than God himself because he is both the giver and the sustainer of salvation. So to Christians, Paul is asking, in effect, who could conceivably take away our no condemnation status? Is there anyone stronger than God, the creator uh, of uh, everyone who ever exists? Uh, End of the quote. Good question. Who's stronger than God? If God is for us, who's against us? Now, if the first part of the phrase weren't there, and you just ask the question, who's against us? Well, you could say everybody is, right? Who's against us? Well, in in the natural realm, many. The world, the flesh, the devil. Because the message of uh, Christianity, the message of the gospel, is so offensive to the natural man, the entire realm of mankind, apart from the regenerating work of God, stands against us. We live in a world where the gospel is hated. And there are many Christians around the world that are this day facing real persecution, a real tribulation, real persecution. Not just somebody said an unkind word to you because you said you're a Christian or somebody laughed at you or somebody smirked or frowned at you because you told them you're a Christian. Real persecution. Your life is being threatened. The lives of your family members are being threatened. And maybe the lives of you or your family members are actually being taken. Because there are many people like that, many followers of Christ around the world, preachers, missionaries, just ordinary people around the world that face much hostility in various areas around the world. Who is against us? Some of you may have come from unsafe families. Your parents, perhaps, aren't very happy with you because you've embraced Christ. Some of you perhaps are married to a spouse who doesn't know Christ and they're upset with you. They'd like to separate you from Christ if that was possible and all that nonsense that you're wasting your time with on a Sunday. False religious systems would like to separate you from Christ like Roman Catholicism that anathematizes and damns people or excommunicates them eternally if they go against Roman Catholic teaching. They'd like to separate you from Christ because they falsely believe they have that power to damn your soul eternally. Who's against us? Truth is, there's a lot of uh, secular universities, a lot of secular professors who are trying to do everything they can to impress uh, young Christians to sever them from Christ because, again, that's what the culture does. That's what the culture wants to do. And I alluded to it this morning. You see it everywhere in our country, all across our country. All kinds of bizarre activity, all kinds of intentional acts of wickedness and immorality, all kinds of satanic, demonic, perverse mutilation and abuse of children. Listen, to separate them from their parents, to separate them from their families, to separate them, the, the, the children from authority figures, 
in order to separate them from the truth and then ultimately separate them from Christ. That's the agenda. Make sure you mark it down and understand it. That's the agenda with the LGBTQI, XYZ, plus, one, two, three, whatever they, uh, acronym they come up with next, and the trans agenda. That's the agenda. Make sure you mark that. That's it. It's to separate you from your family. Your family doesn't understand you. We will love you. Come get mutilated. And you'll be part of our community. You don't need to listen to your parents. They're old fogies. They go to church. What do you need to listen to that nonsense for? It's a battle for the truth. It's an intentional desire to separate people from the truth and to separate them from Christ. Again, it's demonic. Who's against us? Well, what about you? Maybe it's not just wicked people around you who are trying to influence you to sin and reject Christ. What about you yourself? Can you separate yourself from Christ? Can you lose your salvation by coming to a point where you reject and you move yourself away from Christ? Many people who wrongly believe that. Many people. But again, look at the first part of the question. It says, since God is for us. Since God is for us, who is against us? Since God is for us, who can stand against us? Again, the question is, who's stronger than God? Who's greater than God? Again, it's a rhetorical question. It doesn't need an answer. The answer is obvious. Who's stronger than God? So if God or since God is on your side, who will thwart his will? Wicked men? Devils? False teachers? You? Your own sin? Your actions or lack of actions? Can you remove yourself from the no condemnation status in Christ? I think not. In fact, I know for certain not. Have I ever read the top of chapter 8? Verse 1 that says, There is now what? Therefore, no condemnation. Want to take a shot at it in the Greek? Actually, it means what it says. There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right in the margin, done deal. Done deal. Since God is for us, who's against us? Who can stand against God in the entire universe? Rhetorical question, the answer is no one. Now, what about God himself? Well, because God's a person. What about God himself? Could God ever get to the place where he would take away your salvation if he wants? Could God get to the place where he says, look, I've had enough of this fellow. This guy's driving me crazy. I can't stand him anymore. It's more trouble than he's worth. I've changed my mind. Can God do that? Can God do that if he wants? Can God take away the gift of salvation that he gave to us, can he take it back? And the answer to that question comes in verse 32. And in essence, it says God would never do that. What shall we say to these things if God's for us, who is against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Now, the greatest thing that God has ever done, the greatest proof of his love and favor towards his own was the giving of his son. And if God has already done the greater thing, that being the giving of his son, he can and he will certainly do the lesser thing by graciously making sure that nothing 
not even us, will ever come between him and his love for us uh, and the salvation of our souls. So that's the tenor of the argument. From the greater to the lesser, it's a Jewish methodology of uh, arguing. Argue from the greater to the lesser. God's loved us and he's chosen us and he's loved us before the foundation of the world. He's predetermined that he's going to set a love relationship on us forever that will last uh, in time and last throughout eternity. And so committed to that love, so committed to that uh, love for us, his love is so strong, so secure, in order to make that happen, in order to make that a reality, he has given to us his son. Now here's the question. I think I may have asked it last week, but again, you need to write this one down. When did he do that? When did he give us his son? Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love towards us that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? In while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says almost the same thing in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. No one is getting into heaven. No one is getting saved by works. And listen, no one is getting unsaved by works. Right? No one's getting saved by works. No one's getting unsaved by works. It's a gift of salvation. is a gift of God's grace. And God is so committed to that love relationship that he determined before time began in order to make that reality, uh, confirm that reality, to make it come to fruition, to make it come to pass, he has given his son to us in time while we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10 of Romans 5, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So again, God did this all while we were sinners, all while we were his enemies. And if he loved us enough uh, to give us his son, which again is the greatest sacrifice that he could give, most certainly he'll not, will he not do the lesser thing, whatever is necessary to keep us, to make sure that we don't mess up our own salvation? And if God has done the greater thing in giving his son, he certainly is not going to undo the work of his son. He's certainly not going to hold back the least, uh, keeping us uh, secure, because Christ has already paid the penalty. Christ has already bore the punishment. He's already paid the penalty for our sins by giving his life. And if God would ever let us go, then he would be depreciating the work that his son accomplished. To say nothing of disdaining the supreme sacrifice that his son, the son of God, gave in being the sin bearer and taking our punishment for our sin upon himself. Again, that's the point of the argument. God would never do this. God would never take away anybody's salvation. Again, that's exactly what he says here in verse 32. God's not going to let anything, not even us, because of our own sin, not even himself. It's something he wouldn't do because of the work of his son. Verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. So it's interesting, I think, that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
is pointing our attention to the cross of Christ. Facts concerning the cross of Christ. uh, Facts concerning the atonement. He says, look, if you're going to have hope, if you're going to be encouraged by this doctrine of eternal security, if you're going to know for sure that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, if you're going to understand that God's for us and no one can ever stand against us, uh, if you're going to know for certain that God is really on our side, then you, you have to understand truth. And you have to understand the cross. I mean, isn't that really the struggle of us all, I think, at various times, right? Especially when things aren't going well. We doubt really whether God is for us. We, we doubt whether God is really on our side in a time of difficulty, in times of trouble. But again, Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is given the answer. He says, look, in, in times of difficulty, in times always, but especially in times of difficulty, you need to consider doctrinal truth. You need to consider the cross. Now, a lot of times, and perhaps you've heard people say this, people say, well, you know, doctrine's boring. Uh, doctrine doesn't matter. Uh, and, and those kind of statements are so tremendously sad. Again, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there's nothing more foolish or self-defeating than for a Christian to say he's not interested in doctrine. Sadly, there's a whole lot of people who call themselves Christians that aren't interested in doctrine. I mentioned that or alluded to that this morning. And doctrine really is nothing more than an explanation of the meaning the significance of the historical events and facts concerning the activities of God. To, to look at an event and uh, not understand what's going on has no value. But doctrines help explain the object, the meaning, the purpose of the event so that we might understand the event and understand God's purposes and plans. So again, the way to combat doubt, the way to resist the devil, to analyze everything that the world throws at you to be able to rejoice in the hope and the glory of Christ, the way to have a real assurance that your salvation is true is to have a firmer grasp on doctrine, upon Christian doctrine. And the firmer grasp that you have upon doctrinal truth, the greater source of your assurance will be. If you're going to take your stand anywhere, my friends, on any issue in life, I I beg you to take it on this book. Right? This is it. This is where I stand. That's what Luther said, right? The Diet of Worms. And here I take my stand, I can do no other. Right? I'm going to take my stand with God and his word. It's a good place to be. So what the apostle is doing here, again in verse 32, is he's going to share the fact that, again, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, uh, the facts concerning the cross. The facts concerning the atonement. So that we can be encouraged, and again, by doctrine, so we can really realize that God indeed is on our side. Since God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So what then are the facts concerning the cross that the Apostle Paul is going to lay out here? What's the meaning of them? So here in verse 32, there are actually four major facts concerning the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one. First of all, verse 32 tells us the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was that something that God did, something that God himself did. It's all God's action. Again, he did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for all, for us all. Now you go, well, that's pretty evident. Well, that might be evident to you, but that's not evident to a lot of people around the world. There's a great error that you perhaps have heard that goes something along the lines like this, that, you know, that God of the Old Testament, he's a pretty mean and vengeful God full of wrath towards men. He wanted to wipe everybody out. He wanted to condemn everybody. But Jesus, he's the loving God of the New Testament, and he came to stand between the Old Testament God's anger and us. 
And he came, Jesus came to the Father. He said, oh, I love these people so much. I'm going to die in their place. Yeah, and you spare them for my sake. And then somewhat reluctantly, the angry father, the vengeful father of the Old Testament says, okay, for your sake, I'll not wipe them out. That's a tremendous error. It's a tremendous error in understanding the gospel. To think that the, the, the cross of Jesus Christ is nothing more than a loving Jesus trying to turn away or change the mind of an angry, reluctant God. It's not what it's, the Bible teaches. In fact, the verse before us says quite the opposite. The verse tells us that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was the Father's idea. He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. He did not spare his own son. It was his idea. He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. Also tells us that the death of Christ was not uh, some kind of tragic accident, the way many people think. There's another common error concerning the cross of Christ that some people see the cross of the Lord Jesus as nothing more than a tragic accident, nothing more than a day when evil men killed this most kind, best man who ever lived. They see the cross of Christ as, again, a tragic accident, nothing more than a miscarriage of justice. And while it's true that evil men did conspire and did kill Christ, it's, uh, and it's true that they bear the guilt and the responsibility for their crime, it's also true and more important to understand that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, was planned and accomplished by God the Father himself. It was Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, who said, This man, Jesus, was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It was God the Father who predetermined from eternity past that Christ would die, that Christ would be sent into the world. He would die, die in atoning death as part of this, again, preordained plan to uh, secure the salvation of men in time. So again, the very idea that the God of the Old Testament is some kind of vengeful, out-of-control deity is that appe- that, who's appeased only by the love of the New Testament, God Jesus, it's utter nonsense, and beyond that, it's really blasphemous. Listen. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ proves to us God the Father's love for us from the beginning. And not just from the beginning, it really proves the love of the Father for us from eternity. He loves us from eternity, he loves us from the beginning, he loves us now. He's always loved us. He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for his own. Secondly, the second truth that comes out of that statement tells us the terrible problem of sin the terrible problem of sin that God had to give his own son to deal with it he did not spare his own son and again it speaks to the uh, immensity of the love of God for us and the immensity of the gift his own son now the fact that he did not spare his own son also speaks to the enormity of the issue the enormity of the problem of sin because it was God's the Father, God the Father's plan to send him. It was only the Son who was able to come, only the Son who was able to deal with the issue of our sin. So on the cross, who's on the cross? It's deity. God's own Son, deity, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he has to die to pay for the sin of mankind. It's the understanding that the divine death is required or that divine death is required for sin to be dealt with that really gives the full force of the meaning of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Divine death is required. 
Why did Jesus Christ die? He had to. It's necessary. If God was ever going to extend mercy and grace to us, if he's ever going to be long-sufferingly compassionate uh, towards men, he can't violate his holiness. He can't violate his justice. The wages of sin is death. Somebody has to pay the penalty. Now, God could have just left us to ourselves. He could have just left us in our sin. Uh, under the just condemnation of the law, that would have been fair. He could have left us to bear the responsibilities for our sins personally in our own body, to bear the eternal punishment that our sin required, but he didn't do that. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did he do that? Romans 3.26, For the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3.26. Going back a verse in that passage, in verse 25 of Romans chapter 3, he said, He did that by displaying Jesus Christ publicly upon Calvary's cross as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Again, it was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. God's holiness, God's justice has to be taken care of. It has to be met. And the death of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross was necessary because we're all sinners. We we all deserve to, to, to die for our sin. But on the cross, Jesus Christ becomes our our sacrifice. Jesus Christ bears our sin. Jesus Christ becomes our substitute. Jesus Christ pays our penalty of death that our sin required. Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that. The perfect Savior. The only Savior. No one's coming to the Father but through me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the perfect Savior, the perfect sacrifice, the sinless man and the one who's eternal God. You're familiar with it, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his his scourging we are healed. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you're healed. We believe, first of all, that the atonement of Christ on Calvary's cross was substitutionary. Again, he stood in our place. Christ took the place of those who deserve God's wrath and punishment. He stood there and took their punishment for their sin. We deserve to be punishment. We deserve to bear the face the wrath of God against our sin and rebellion. But at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who turned away God's personal, righteous, just anger towards us because he stands as a propitiation for our sin. He stands in our place because it was the Father's design from eternity past to give the Son into the world for that express purpose because of his love for men whom he would redeem. Again, Jesus Christ was and is the only perfect sacrifice. He's the spotless lamb. He's the only one qualified. He's the only one qualified to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Again, perfect man, perfect God, who alone could fulfill God's justice and allow God's holiness not to be violated so that those who would repent and believe upon Christ could be made righteousness in him, set free from the penalty of sin, which is, again, eternal death. Now, none of us could do that, right? No no, no man can fulfill that responsibility. No mere man. Because we're all sinners, all born separated from God. 
But at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that separation has been removed, reconciliation has taken place, and the fellowship has been restored. And as sinners, we are in bondage to sin. Uh, We were part of the kingdom of Satan. But because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, who becomes our Redeemer, he has set us free from sin's bondage. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And had not the death of Christ been absolutely necessary, God the Father would never have exposed his Son to it. Had the death of Christ not been absolutely necessary, God the Father would never have exposed his Son to it and all the suffering that he endured around the cross. If there was any other way for sin to be dealt with, then God certainly would not have ever sent his son into the world to suffer, to die upon Calvary's cross in order to deal with the issue of sin. But listen, there is no other way. There was, there is no other way. God has loved us from eternity and sent to earth in time the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And God is so holy and sin is such a problem, he didn't spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. Again, nothing could be more precious than the intensity that a father has for his son, that God the Father has for his son, yet he did not spare his own son. Again, God proves his love. God God declares his love. God sets forth the greater thing and the giving of his own son the lesser thing, the securing eternally of our salvation. Third fact comes out of verse 32. Very closely related to the last one in that not only God gave his own son to deal with the issue of sin, of sin, but look at the words, he did not spare. He didn't spare his own son. Do you really think that you could commit some act of sin and place yourself out of the grace of God? Do you really think that once you're genuinely saved that you could do something so unusually heinous that it nullifies the divine work of redemption, won by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ made possible by the love of God who did not spare his own son? The whole idea is utterly impossible, ridiculous. To ever think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die, but by somehow something you did or did not do, you could overturn the work of God in Christ, that God himself would cast you out of his family and his kingdom, is to not understand the grace and the mercy and the immensity of the love of God in Christ. He did not spare his own son. You remember, I hope, the story that's found in Genesis chapter 22, Isaac with his father Abraham on Mount Moriah. God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And uh, Abraham was willing. Yet at the very moment that Abraham raised his hand with a knife to slay Isaac, God stopped his hand. And he said this, Genesis 22, verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will indeed greatly bless you and greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea shores, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. 
you've done this thing, you've not withheld your son. Now the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, renders the verse like this. Genesis 22, verse 16. I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, because you have done this thing on account you have not spared. On my account, you have not spared your beloved son. It's the same word here in verse 32 of Romans 8. Abraham was willing to be obedient to God and not spare his own son. Therefore, God interrupted the whole affair and provided a ram caught in the thicket. Remember the story? God himself provided a substitute. Isaac was spared so that God might demonstrate his love for men as a picture for all to understand that one day God the Father himself would not spare his own son. But rather he'd give him over to death. In order that the sons of men like Abraham and Isaac and you and me, we might go free. God gave Christ to be our sin bearer that we who believe might be spared the punishment. Last point. Point number four. God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. God the Father, he delivered him up for us all. Right? The Lord Jesus Christ, again, was crucified by the Father's decree. And for us all is really the gospel in three words. The word for means for the benefit of or the sake or the sake of. It's, it's substitution. If you wanted to have one word, if you just pick one word to define the gospel, it probably would be a little bit difficult, but I would suggest if you wanted just one word, use the word substitution. It's probably the best word. Jesus died as a substitute. He died in our place. It says here he died for us all. And again, it's qualified by all who believe that we might be rescued from the penalty of our sin that should have been justly inflicted upon us. He did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for us all. Not only has God delivered Christ up so that we might escape the penalty of sin, God delivered up Christ so that we might escape the power of sin. And not only that, but God delivered up Christ so that one day we might escape the very presence of sin, which means that we're going to be with him in glory. Amen? So if you want to be encouraged about your eternal salvation and the security of your eternal salvation, if you want to be encouraged in times of doubting, then read God's word. That's it. It's that simple. Believe in God. Believe in me. I think I read that this morning, right? Believe what God says to be true. Don't believe men. Believe what God says to be true. Believe in God. Believe what God says to be true. Hold fast to sound doctrine. As every single word that we're working our way through in this section really is vitally important. And don't listen to fools on the internet who say that eternal security is heresy. Don't listen to fools who say that the doctrine that doctrine doesn't matter. You and I, you and I need to lay hold of every single word that comes out of the mouth of God, and we need to cherish it greatly. What shall we then say against these things if God is for us? Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now here's the question. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Again, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser, right? Do you think you can lose your salvation? Again, the statement would be, think again, if God is for us, again, who can be against us? Since God is for us. Since God didn't spare his own son. 
but delivered him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? So now the question is, what does all things mean here? Since, his, since God has already given to us his son, I think all things here has to mean all things that work together for our good. I think that makes sense in the context. How will he not also with him freely? It's a charizomai. It's a graciously. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It has to mean that God's going to overrule everything in our lives by grace to work out our salvation, to work out all things to our eternal benefit. It means that God has graciously forgiven us in Christ, and God has made it impossible for anything ever to come between us and his eternal plan to secure our salvation through his son. Again, if God's for us, who can be against us? A rhetorical question. Everybody answers, no one. No one. No one outside ourselves, no one. Not even ourselves, no one. Because nothing can ever separate us from the love of God found in us through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's tremendous good news. So we should be encouraged. We should all be encouraged. We should all praise our God. We should all thank him, adore him, worship him, because he's worthy. Amen? Amen. Our Father and our God, thank you for this great, wonderful truth in this portion of Scripture. Every morning, every evening, we open your word, and we hear from you, and you so encourage our hearts. We're just so thankful to you. Thank you for, thankful for the truth. Thankful for the truth we looked at tonight, the truth we looked at this morning. Thank you for the permanent indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit, the fact that you, God the Father, the God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, dwell within the genuine believer, and that nothing can ever separate you or separate us from your love. So we just praise you. We thank you. Help us to believe truth. Help us to speak truth to our own hearts and encourage each other with these truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.